welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. During this podcast, I reference the launch of Super Stylist, which is our new online learning course. And I highly recommend that you check it out. We start the launch on January the 11th with a free webinar, and we repeat the webinar again on the 12th and the 18th. So if you want to find out more about it, you need to register for the webinar at growmysalonbusiness.com. So on with today's show. There's lots of things to love about hairdressers and the hairdressing industry, but let's be totally honest, sometimes we have more than our fair share of emotion, gossip, drama, and even misinformation. In times of great change, and that means 2020 for sure, we need to be plugged into people who have an informed, objective, and well-balanced perspective. And that's why I'm excited to talk to my guest today, my friend, fellow podcaster, and CEO of Hairbrained, Gordon Miller. Gordon is one of those people that, although he's been in the industry in a numerous roles for the last 40 odd years, that to some degree he isn't emotionally invested in that he doesn't have a salon, school, or product. So he manages to remain objective and have an overview which can be both calming, reassuring, insightful, and refreshing. Now, although he's based in the United States, I think that most of what Gordon and I talk about on the podcast today is totally relevant, no matter where you live in the world. So in today's podcast, we discuss the impact of COVID on various different business models. What might the long-term psychological impact be on people and how that impacts on hairdressers? And how will in-salon retail and color be affected by the online world? And lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Mr. Gordon Miller. Anthony Whitaker, thank you once again. Our, our, our first uh, talk in quite a while. I'm honored. It is. It is. So it's absolutely great to have this opportunity to have you on the show uh, one more time. Um, and I want to start off, first of all, by congratulating you on your podcast series that you did with Garen. He uh, has an amazing uh, catalog of work over the last 50 years. Um, so thank you for, for giving him a, a voice and bringing that to all these people out there, me included, who regularly listen to your podcast because it was uh, very inspiring. I absolutely loved listening to it. Thank you. For, thank you for that. It, it was a joy. You know, it was it was I, I love the podcast. I know you love yours. We have such a unique opportunity to engage with people. But to have someone like Garen, who's who for the last 50 years, every decade, I was like, wait, there's more. There's more. Yeah. <laughs> the people he's come in contact with, the, the influence he's had is, is brilliant. So thank you yeah. for that. Oh, no, my pleasure. Uh, so I envy you having the, uh, you know, the opportunity to dig in because that's one of the things, isn't it, with podcasts is that, yeah. you know, if I sidle up to you in a bar or something or we're out for dinner or whatever and I start asking you the sort of questions I'm going to ask you, it's like, for God's sake, calm down a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> like it's a bit intense, but it, it, in this sort of environment, it's it's um, it's the purpose of it, and so people understand that's the purpose of it, and they open up and they give a lot, and and so it, it is a real privilege, isn't it, to be able to you know sit on the other end of a microphone and uh, and you know ask people you know questions that uh, that maybe at other times would be uh, inappropriate. So um, <laughs> there we go. Um, now. Obviously, there wouldn't be a hairdresser in the United States that uh, doesn't know who you are, I'm oh, imagining. I, I, I wish that was true. You wish that was true? There's, okay. a, there's a few, who, there's more than a few who don't, so. Right. Well, you know, you, you are so well connected within every area of the American salon industry, and you have been for a very long time. And I love talking to you and love hearing what you say, because I think you always have a very balanced overview of what's happening in the industry because you're not sort of as emotionally connected to it as, you know, a salon owner is obviously, or, or, or even a product manufacturer. I think you have this, this great uh, sort of helicopter 
mm. perspective of this is the industry and this is what's happening uh, in in the US. So you know, I'm looking forward to it. Um, so we need to address the elephant in the room. Uh, this has been a year like no other, um, but I always think it's important to look for the positives. Uh, that have come from 2020. And I talk to people, as I know you do, uh, who have actually had a really good year. Yeah. And sometimes it, it's due to just luck. And sometimes it's good financial and general business planning over the last few years. But at the same time, I don't want to be flippant about the damage that has been done, both emotional and financial, to salons uh, all over the world. Yeah. So, on that note, what I want to ask you is, what do you think, you know, in broad brushstrokes, and I'm sure we can dig into a lot of these things more, but what do you think the long-term impact is going to be on the salon industry uh, post-COVID? And I know we're not really post-COVID yet, but at least vaccines, I mean, mm -hmm. to give it some context, it's the 15th of December today, and this will be launched, this podcast will go live very early January, I'm thinking 5th of January. So, you know, uh, I think in America they've started today uh, doing the vaccines, and we've mm -hmm. started them here. Uh, I think yeah. a week ago or so. You know, so every day helps. At least we're heading in the right direction. So anyway, Anthony, shut up. Let Gordon talk. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you think the long-term impact is going to be on the salon industry? You know, I, I think when if we do take a big step back, which is one of the things I, I enjoy doing most when I think about, you know, the industry and what's going on. I like to get on my helicopter, as you would say, and, and over high above the clouds and, and, and kind of look down. You know, I think of the pandemic in the context of, of history of the industry. And if we think back over, you know, the last, you know, 30, 40 years, every 10 years or so, something happens. It's just kind of the way the world is, you know. Um, you know, we go back to 2008, 2009, we had a recession in America and globally, you know, we, uh, a horrific recession, the worst since the Great Depression in, in America. And so, um, you know, we, we learned a lot from that. And we came out, I would argue, in the long term, better than we were before. Um, do you think before that we had 9-11 and that had an impact on, you know, uh, on every bit of America in, in many different ways? And I, I think, again, there, ultimately, we came back stronger. 10 years before that, another recession, you can go back. And I, I think, you know, in the, when you think about the history of, of the industry, regardless of these things that happened to us, we seem to always come out stronger. I think, you know, humans are resilient, you know, entrepreneurs are resilient, you know, creative people are, are crazy resilient in so many ways. And so I think, you know, when we look past the day-to-day -day pain and, and, and absolute devastation it's done to so many, I, I am extremely optimistic that we will sort it out. First and foremost, because the world will sort it out and, and we're kind of along for the ride and, and we will adjust and, and we'll get to a better place in time. Good insights, you know, as I, as I would have expected you to have. Um, I, I've got a whole lot of questions and not in any particular order. And I know you like to do this as well. You sort of jump all over the places <laughs> to, 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 you know, what seems relevant at the time. Yep. Um, I, I want to I go actually right to the bottom of my list of questions, which is, one that I know that you'll have some, you know, some great perspective on. And, and that is that, you know, when we talk about different generations, when we talk about the millennials and Gen Z and baby boomers and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, we will often hear people talk about how that generation is the way they are because of, you know, what they went through. So after the war or after the Great Depression or, or, or something. And, and you can always sort of nod wisely and sort of agree, yeah, I can see why if you're brought up in that environment that this is going to impact on a whole generation that way as a generalization. So, so the question I want to ask you is this, what sort of, you know, our, our new generation in the workforce now is Gen Z, who mm -hmm. is anyone between the ages of, I think it was eight and 24 is a Gen mm -hmm. Z person. So, in other words, a lot of them are, are our workforce or coming into our workforce uh, at the moment and over the next few years. And so, I, I just wonder how if you're a child at the moment and you have lived through this year of insecurity and fear and lockdown and all the things that go with pandemic, how's that going to affect a generation and how is that going to impact on on our workforce and people's emotional health and all that sort of stuff going forward mm -hmm. so you know what, what what are your thoughts on that 
Well, uh, I would kind of divide the world, our world, I guess, into, into two categories as a kind of a starting place. Those younger people who already have their license, who've gone through school and are, you know, quote unquote, adult and, and in the workforce versus everybody who's to come. You know, those who are currently in school, not yet in school, because I think that's a fundamental dividing line. You know, I think those who are not yet in the salon and are still learning um, are going to have a very different experience because they're jumping into this e-learning, you know, moment that we're all having. And those who've already completed school kind of got out before we had this giant shift in education. And I think that is going to color everything. But I'll I'll go above that first and say that kind of you have to kind of layer this over the entire generations you're talking about is I think they fundamentally have grown up with less trust of the world and and certainly other generations and institutions and industries than any generation perhaps before them. Um, And I think, you know, whether you're use climate change as an example, I mean, you know, there's been plenty of studies done on these younger folks who just say, They've heard since they were young that the world may not be here by the time that they're our age because of what has been happening and and things that they very much don't have control over, whether it, you know, is climate, whether it's things like terrorism, you know, whether it is, you know, just the changing workforce and and the change and how the changing workforce ties, ties to economics and how, you know, money is moving, you know, towards a few number of people and away from other. It's a very complicated world. I would not want to be young. And, um, and um, I, I think that that, at its highest level, um, that last little rant, um, impacts all of their thinking, which, again, I think is one of distrust and one of, of insecurity for the long haul, which I also think exp- it helps us to understand, you know, why does so much of the workforce not want to fully commit to what we used to commit to, that 40-hour week, that 50-hour week, that 60-hour week? Uh, many of the younger people I've talked to, you know, they're prioritizing life over career. You know, they're, they're, they're prioritizing some form of happiness and, and sense of security over career, you know, um, career may still be really, really important, but they have a different way of looking at life than we did. And I think it's going to color each and every part of their careers going forward. And again, I, I think if you look at those who are coming in new, I, I have a lot of concerns about what online learning is going to do to this new generation of, of children coming up and then you know young adults coming up, because I do not believe that we have figured out online learning in a way that will allow it to rise to its fullest potential for individuals. <clears throat> We're in this weird transition moment. I, I've been preaching online stuff for close to 10 years. I love online learning. You know, Hairbrain's very involved in it. But as I say to anybody who will listen, the biggest challenge that the industry faces is we have to learn how to be great educators online, which is very different than being a great educator in front of a room. Um, and we have to also um, learn how to become great students online, which is def- very, very different than sitting in a classroom or sitting in a, in, a, in a convention center, you know, watching someone do a demo. They are fundamentally different. And, and we understand that, uh, especially someone like you, Anthony, that, that teaching a demo is not like teaching a main stage. They're very different. They include some of the same skills, but there's yeah. more. Yeah. Teaching online is different than teaching on a main stage or teaching a demo or teaching a workshop. There are skills that have to be acquired and practiced mm-hmm in doing just like the old school stuff for some reason, because it's online and it's like easy people jump are jumping over that step and, and learners um, are not being provided. I believe the guidance and how to really use these tools effectively. So, so, you know, back to the bigger question, I, I do worry that the younger people who are coming into the industry who've not yet gotten here are going to be at a great disadvantage while we, the existing industry figure out how to be good at teaching and learning online. And I, it's, it's not being talked about at all. And I, I, I really worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Some great stuff there. Um, you know, wh- one of the things I actually pulled it up on my laptop while you were talking because you, you sort of went off in this direction and I thought, Oh, I've got to share that with Gordon. He'll love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. It, it was a quote from, uh, Pharrell Williams and, mm. uh, uh, you know, Mr. Happy. Yes. And, uh, I'm, I'm reading it in front of me. It was in the, uh, an interview, and in, I think it was in the Sunday Times here. It showed up, and he, he says, uh, millennials and Gen Z are socialists, and nobody has noticed. They're not interested in owning a house. They Airbnb. They didn't need to uh, – they don't need to own a super fast car. They Lyft or Uber. They're about being communal. 
So all these old people up there, and he gestures somewhere in the metaphorical direction of the White House, fighting for everything, trying to keep everything closed off, partitions everywhere. It's okay because you're old. And at the end of the day, these kids are the future. And when I read that, I just thought, oh, my God, that is like, I, I thought it was really, really insightful that that, that is yeah. what is happening at the moment. And, you know, some of the stuff that you just that you just touched on sort of ties into that. They're, they're all like pieces of the puzzle, aren't they? You know, as to yeah. it would be easy in hindsight to say, well, this generation are like that because of this, this and this. Yeah. But there's certainly people that are sort of pointing the way to things that are, 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 are molding, you know, this generation that, you know, are going to be the future. And so, to the listeners, yeah. I would I would only say that in America in particular, you know, the, the word socialism has been politicized in, in a yeah. way that is not um, – does not allow a lot of people to understand what socialism is. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah I, I agree with politically, that. Politically, it, it, it's very different. And, and, um, and I would say, to, to take away politics, that this generation coming up is one of great empathy, you know, yeah. um, for the world, for their fellow humans, yeah. you know, for those they work with, you know, yeah. a kinder, gentler world and planet, a safer, more secure world. And one that is not first and foremost about money, you know, you and I are of a generation that money kind of helped lead our, our, um, lead so much of what we did because we kind of grew up in a generation where there was so much opportunity in front of us. It was, it was yeah. new kinds of opportunity that our parents didn't have. So it made sense, but, but now we're in a very different place. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. You know, I was, you know, a coaching client of mine who was with um, one big multinational brand and um, I mean, everyone knows I do a lot of work with Paul Mitchell and I, I was, I wasn't trying to sell him Paul Mitchell. That's not what I do as a coach, but he was asking me questions about it. And um, eventually what he basically did was he said to me, do you know what? Like one of the things I've reevaluated this year is that I need to be aligned with brands that share my values. Mm -hmm. And people didn't talk like that 10 years ago. Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and his values of of giving back, and his values of the environment, and his values of you know money's not the most important thing. It was just really interesting that like mm -hmm. you know people are motivated and inspired by different things today, and you know they have different values. And, and so I think in line with that, that you find that product companies and uh, manufacturers, I mean they're not stupid. They will understand that. All the market research will be showing them that, and, and they will be those that aren't already shifting in that direction. I think that they. Uh, that they have to, uh, otherwise they'll miss the boat. Um, but the other thing, you, sorry, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of predictions right now, you know, about coming to the perhaps the end of an era of brands. You know, um, not meaning the brands themselves will go away, but but the brand and our whether it's our alignment up with you know values or our love of whatever they do. You know, it's 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 like those who love you know Nike. You know, it's like yeah. they don't even think twice. It's like it's Nike. So therefore, that's the shoe I'm going to buy. And we have the same relationships often with hair care brands and, and consumer brands. But there's a lot of thought leaders, you know, predicting a shift to um, the value becoming more important. But you also have so many um, ways today for things to be bought. And, and, and you... You can find you can find great stuff everywhere, you know, and yeah. and so if values come first, there's there's a lot of predictors saying, well, we may value we may align more with the seller than the creator, and so Amazon as a seller or or a retail store as a seller, there could be a big shift coming where that how and where we buy becomes more important than the name of the company that made it, which I find fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The the other thing you, you touched on, which I totally get, is you said how we need to learn to be better educators online. Mm -hmm. But then you said the other bit, which is, and we need to be better, learn to be students online as well. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, I've been um, using Zoom for coaching calls for uh, two and a half years. Um and so I felt comfortable with Zoom. And interestingly, though, every time I got a new coaching call and I said, now I do these over Zoom, they were like, what's that? And how do you mm -hmm. use it? And mm -hmm. so I had to sort of talk people through it and how to, how to use it and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, nowadays, every, you know, it's like, so um, I'm on Zoom. Do you, do you use Zoom? And they go, yeah, of course. Doesn't everybody? You know, it's like <laughs> the uptake on that technology. Yes. It, it's like what would have happened 
in maybe five years has happened in nine months. Do you know right. what I mean? Like yep. everything has just been sped up. But in terms of being able to use the technology, but it's interesting, you know, when I'm doing uh, webinars and stuff online and, uh, you know, group coaching calls, a lot of people are sat there on the other end of the screen, like the proverbial dare in the headlights, you know, because they don't know what to do as learners right. on yep. Zoom either, yep. you know, yep. and they're frightened to to break anything. <laughs> how, do, how do I use this? How do I ask a question? Can, yep. can people see me or not see me? It's 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 very interesting. So that is part of the learning process, isn't it? Getting people more comfortable on the learning side as much as on the, the teaching side. And recognize the opportunity that can be lost if it doesn't happen. Because, you know, I, I have the same experience dealing with audiences and, you know, I'm always looking going, well, how many of those quiet people who perhaps are just not quite there, they're there because everybody else is there, but they don't necessarily, they haven't quite cracked the code for themselves and how to best take advantage of the platform. How many of them won't come back? You know, how many people go into the back of a beauty school, not beauty school, I'm sorry. How many people go into a beauty show classroom, stand in the back of the room because that's the only place they can be because there's no seats left. They got there too late. And for whatever reason, have a bad experience and just never come back into a, into a beauty show classroom. Oh, beauty show classrooms are bad because I had a singular bad experience. There's a lot of human nature that takes us there. And I very much worry that, again, the cart before the horse, you know, in a yeah. little bit. People are jumping into this, but we've not figured out, again, what to do about it. I was talking to a young lady who, who reached out to me um, who is a, a, a fan of, of the podcast to, that I do. And, and she was talking about learning and she'd heard something and she's like, you know, I love it, you know, but there was a bunch of butts in it. And I'm like, well, when do you do it? Like, do you have habits around it? Oh yeah. You know, I do it on the bus every day. And I was like, okay. So let me just throw out an idea. Who'd you last watch on the bus? Sam, Sam Via. I was like, so um, if I could wave a magic wand next time you're on the bus and Sam would be right there with you. Like right there with you could teach you, right? What would you think? And she's like, on the bus? I'm like, well, that's how I feel about you trying to learn on the bus, period. <laughs> yeah. So, on the bus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because again, distractions and noise and, you know, learning is, we should think of it, you know, as special and almost sacred. And it's like, take that same amount of time, find some time in front of a, a larger screen, find some time in a quiet place, find some time where you can maybe make some notes or whatever it is that allows you to learn better. We need to be more thoughtful. And I just think sometimes technology makes us go, Oh, that's easy. I'll just do it, whatever. And that yeah. doesn't necessarily mean we're getting what we thought we were going to get. So. Yeah, exactly. It, we, people try and multitask too much. You know, I, I've been so, on some, yes. I've been on some zoom calls where people have not understood that I can see them. And, you know, there, there was one in particular. It, it wasn't, you know, risque. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't uh, scandalous. But she had no idea that everyone could see her. And, <laughs> and she was basically doing all the housework and just tidying <laughs> up around her and, and, and bending over in front of the camera yeah. an awful lot, you know, because that happened to be she was picking up stuff and putting it on shelves. Um uh, and it, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Anyway, um, let, let's get back to COVID for a minute here. Yeah. Um, and the, the sort of, you know, the, the, the state that we're all left in. Um, is there any data that you're seeing um, about how many people have left the industry um, or how many salons have closed in, in the US? Have you, are you getting any sort of reliable data on that or any, you know, just if it's being said this often, there must be something there. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start with the last part. If, if there's anything that we've learned in the last few years, it's just just because it, it is being said often doesn't remotely mean it, it might be true. Because <laughs> yeah. we're yeah. in a world of fake news and conspiracy theories and just yeah. all kinds of stuff. And so I'll, I'll apply it here. You know, we, we have very consistently heard the same numbers of, you know, 20 to 30 percent of salons closing and 30 plus percent of professionals leaving the industry. I've been hearing it for months and months and which automatically makes me think, you know, question the, 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 the veracity of it. Like, where is this coming from? And I, I, I think it all started with one big conversation online and people just kind of glommed onto it and said, well, this must be the reality. Mm. And um, it was just a projection. And so I'm constantly talking to, to, to companies, brands, research people, consultants going, what do you hear? What do you see? I don't think we have a, a good sense of it. Um, I, 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 my own very amateur sleuthing for data says, I think we're going to be 
less damage than we had previously thought. Uh, my, my gut is I'm hearing more and more, maybe 10% of salons will close. Um, nobody knows how many people leave the industry. We never really have a good handle on that number. It's kind of sad mm. to say. Um, but I also really strongly believe that no one's going to really know, including salon owners individually, are going to know what the future looks like until we pass into the new year. I think there's a lot of people, we're in survival mode. You know, we're Everybody's trying to hang on the best they can during really difficult times. And most of them will make it. But I don't think we know you know, who, who will and who won't. And I also think that we don't yet have a really good handle. And this maybe is why the delay and clients behavior, it all boils down to how many clients are going to come into our businesses. And if enough come, a salon will make it and enough don't, they might not. And so I think there's a lot of unknown relative to this. And I think a lot of decisions will be, will be made in the first quarter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is there any, um, I mean, definitely in the United States, there's, there's very defined different business models. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of booth rental, a lot of suites, a lot of commission based. Um, and that has been, um, you know, changing dramatically in the last 10 years. Yep. Uh, is there any business model that has been, you know, from your observations, it's been harder hit uh, or the opposite, any business model that's benefiting? It's, you know, this is a complicated conversation and I'll, I'll do the simple version of, but it, but it is complicated and it, it, it's, it's really easy to, to speak generally, which I think is, is problematic. In other words, the, the big conversation is that suites have really benefited, that rental benefits. There's a lot of conversations within the industry, especially in the, the bigger um, companies and, and, and institutions about, you know, rental being kind of the the big beneficiary of COVID period rental, which includes suites and commissions being in trouble. I I would divide it up a little differently. I think big salons, big salons period are, are more challenged. Um, And, you know, small is kind of the new big perhaps going forward. Um, When you've got a lot of rent, think of it this way, a salon that was 110% productive pre COVID would have a challenge with the new world order and post COVID because you were, your profitability was dependent on being fully booked all the time and fully at capacity and, and Mm -hmm. highly productive. The typical salon in America is not that salon. The typical salon in America is probably at 60% of hundred percent of capacity. Yeah. I've talked to so many salons that are in that category. They've adjusted fine. They've made their adjustments. They haven't had massive drop-offs. They haven't necessarily had all their clients come back yet, but they're not facing the challenge of a fully booked, kick-ass, old-school commission salon. So I think they are the most challenged of all salons, big, um, commissioned, um, and and they've been in the minority for a long time. Hmm. Any salon that was not at 100% capacity of, of you know their potential as a business, I think is in a better is in a better place. Again, the bigger question is you know who's coming back and who isn't. You know the, the jury's still out on that. On on the rental side, I think we're seeing two things. We're seeing a lot of people in rental feeling very lonely right now, and I hear that a lot. You know they don't have a support system. They're not with a team. They're tired. Like we're all tired, and and and, hmm. and some of them are rethinking you know, the, the commission model, you know, the team-based model, because they want to move past that. They want to, they want to feel more secure and they feel more secure with the team. Perhaps they want to get more support and have some leadership. And so you got some people going back that way. You've got a lot of others um, who are looking at rental and my fear there, because, you know, always some things to worry about with change is a lot of people who are moving to rental. I would argue from conversations are not necessarily people who always aspired to rental. They're going to rental out of out of a desperation. They're going to rental out of fear. And a lot of them just aren't built to be in that position. You know, not all of us are built to, to work certain ways. Not all of, you and I work from home. We've done it for a long time in our roles. Not everybody's built to work at home. I have a lot mm-hmm. of corporate friends who are like, the hardest part about all of this is just simply working from home. Lack of mm-hmm. structure, lack of my stuff, lack of my yeah. social interactions. We're not all built. You and I are built for this. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I'm good at working at home. I have been for a long time. And so I think a lot of people who are moving towards independence, they weren't necessarily built for independence. And I do think we're going to see a higher failure rate looking mm-hmm. forward in that model than we've seen in the past. The big conversation I would say on business model is that suites have really benefited. My question on suites is, I think there's always been more attrition than we realized, again, because people are drawn to the model. It's a great model. I, I, I fully support it for those who, who want to be in it. But again, I think that a lot of people 
Well, first I would say there's only so much inventory in the suite model. So the idea that it's growing and they have to build buildings, like there aren't a lot of buildings being built right now in that way. So what, whatever the movement towards suites is, I think a lot of it is to fill excess inventory that was already there. A lot of it is to fill perhaps inventory from people who left their suite because of COVID, they just gave up. And so Again, I think the jury's on, on what it really means, you know, because I think until the economy opens up again and, and we see the sweet part of the industry actually start to physically expand more, more facility. I know there were some facilities built pre-COVID that hadn't opened yet. But so, again, I think the jury's very much out on all this stuff. And yeah. I honestly don't see my prediction is not a significant change from where we are right now. I think things will settle back in somewhat close to where they were. And a lot of that is not due to anything more than, again, people coming into the industry and where they best fit themselves personally and professionally in terms of their own needs as a, a professional. I need a boss. I don't need a boss. I need a bigger culture. I don't need a bigger culture. I need certain you know, support systems I don't need. And I think that ultimately will define how things settle more so than the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so the thing that's driving the sweet model is the perception that as a hairdresser, I'm safer and, and as a client, I'm safer. I believe, I believe I'm safer so. in a room with four walls and a door, even though I'm by myself, rather than being in a salon with 20 people. And so that's and the also, thing that's and, all, and also there's another driver, I think, which is impossible to quantify. And that is, you know, that when we get to these big moments in change, a lot of us go into these reflective moments of like, where is my life? Where is my mm. career? And yeah. so some of those decisions of I've been not happy for a while and I'm, this moment inspires me to change yeah. for better or for worse. We don't always yeah. make the right choices, but I do think that a lot of everything else we're talking about is sped up. I think on an individual basis, a lot of people's decision to make career changes has been sped up by the pandemic. That doesn't mean they necessarily are making the right choice for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, let's talk about retail for a minute. Um, in the, in the U S you have a model which doesn't actually exist uh, the same outside of the US with mm -hmm. Amazon. I mean, everyone will know the name Amazon. They won't know the name Salon Interactive. But, mm -hmm. uh, and I know Salon Interactive is different to Amazon, but for the sake of this conversation, it's, let's say it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and during COVID, they have both obviously benefited from the lockdowns as clients have been forced online that wouldn't have been forced online in the past. Um, so the question is, is how do you think that what's happened in the last 12 months is going to impact on the salon retail environment? Well, it all goes to, you know, the client's behavior. It's not necessarily what we want. You know, it's mm -hmm. what, what does the client want? And like you say, they've, they've, they feel they've either been forced or they have gleefully <laughs> jumped into the yeah. online buying space. And, and, and from the look of the building that I live in, and the lobby every day and the number of boxes that has exponentially increased since COVID, I, I think they are joyfully sitting around all day buying stuff. You know? so, yeah. so I think client, I, I think behavior of consumers is radically changing. Um, and I think a, a lot of it uh, and, and, and from people who didn't want to do it because we love the shopping experience so much, I think a lot of them are realizing they didn't love it as much as they thought. So, so there is some behavior that's going to stick with consumers um, based around changing perceptions of time and convenience and, 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 and what joy I do or don't get from, from, from physically shopping versus online shopping. And so it feels like from everything I'm reading and seeing that consumer behavior is going to be forever changed. How we think about our time and, and using it to shop is going to change. And I, I, look, if, if a salon isn't offering a significant point of difference in the retail experience, like why, why do I need to wait to come into the salon to buy it? So mm -hmm. I think retail is going to be hit in a significant way. And I think um, the question is just kind of how long it's going to take, you know, to settle in, but I'm not overly optimistic. Um, I, I think forever the hairdresser will be the lead person in recommending and, and helping the hair, helping the consumer understand what to do with their hair and how to do it. But the question is, is re retail going to remain compelling in the salon? And it's, it's a massive question mark. And um, there's an, the other side of this is the economics of retail. I'm, I'm hearing from an awful lot of salons who, who, who are really staring at the shelves in their businesses and looking at what they 
consider the value in terms of dollars and cents of retail sitting on a shelf and perhaps lack of inventory control and are feeling financial pressure of having inventory. So I think that's going to have some impact as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I know we had a conversation about this 18 months ago and you quoted a figure then that that was well-researched. I think you it was from, um, I think it was from L'Oreal at the time that you said to me that, uh, they mentioned a figure of 15% of professional product was bought online. Um, I don't know if you remember that conversation. I, yeah, but, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it came from L'Oreal, but it came from somebody. Yes, I do remember right. it. Yes, absolutely. It, 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 is there any update on that figure? Because, I mean, obviously that's going to increase. It's just a matter of how much. So I'm just curious as to whether you've heard any any Not reliable yet. data on that. Uh, not yet. Uh, the all I've heard is anecdotally from just about everybody I've spoken to at the brand level that you know retail sales have gone through the roof online. You know that fifteen yeah. yeah. percent has exploded, um, and I'm also hearing you know um, um, again I, I think savvy salons are seeing an uptick in retail. You know with curbside pickup and other things. So I yeah. so I'm hearing positive things on both sides. Again, I think the big the big question mark will be the consumer behavior over time and how it totally settles in. And I think by the end of next year, we'll have a we'll have a sense of it. Yeah. Uh, another thing on the retail thing is that there's uh, a big upsurge everywhere with various sort of um, affiliate marketing models. Yeah. Um, you know, where the hairdresser gets a commission by referring the client to the the brand's homepage, yeah. uh, so that they still get a commission by putting some code in or something, uh, but they don't have to have uh, real estate in their yeah. salon tied up with a whole lot of inventory on a shelf, and they therefore don't also have the cash uh, tied up in inventory. Yeah. Uh, do you see that being more of a trend? I definitely see it as more as a trend. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And it's also interesting, you know, because if, you know, these affiliate programs are really marketing programs. Yeah. And if you think of traditional retail in the salon, I would call that a sales program. There's marketing involved, but the ultimate goal is for retail to exist in the salon so it gets sold, right? Yeah. And, and the affiliate program is saying, we'll sell it for you. We, some other entity, whether we're a distributor, whether we're a manufacturer, we will sell it and we will give you credit for marketing it. And that's a fundamental, complete shift in how we think about retail, mm. you know, from the salon as a marketer or from salon as a sales place, unit, whatever, to a marketing function. And I, you know, I, it's interesting. I, I do not believe we've been very good at selling in the salon collectively, looking at the numbers or some who kill it and just, you know, are, are brilliant and prove that it works. And, but the majority do not. I think those who have struggled in with a client in the chair to put a bottle in their hands and talk about it, um, those people are not going to be much more successful in driving a client to a link to buy something. Because if they still don't take the time to educate the client, that's problematic. And I just, I don't see that having affiliate programs is fundamentally going to change the people, the behavior of people who aren't doing what we hope they would do, which is to inspire clients to buy retail. Yeah. It's interesting that I, I, I was my last haircut in a, a local barbers uh, to where I live. Um, there was a young guy and he, and he cut my, he didn't know who I was or what I do or whatever. I'm just a client, you know, and I love consciously that. go to different places all the time. Yeah. I love being a client, you know, and I yeah. pick up stories. Here I am telling another one. Of them. And um, <laughs> he used a, a particular comb on my hair that I really liked the effect. It, it had very wide teeth. And so it didn't mm -hmm. make my hair look too combed, mm -hmm. so to speak. And um, I made some comment about it. And he said to me, oh, yeah, you can get it on Amazon, you know, with great enthusiasm, mm -hmm. you know, that you can get it on Amazon. And I, I reflected on it and thought to myself, you know, if that comb was available at the front of the salon, he probably wouldn't have told me about it. You know, or if he had, he would have felt really awkward or uncomfortable about it. Yeah. But telling me you could get it on Amazon didn't make him feel like he was selling it. And I, and I just sort of looked at him and thought that's often the problem in this industry. We right. we just miss that trick. It's so easy for me as a consumer, and I've had numerous experiences like that. Whereas if yeah. if someone would just bother to give me the education 
um, uh, and, and offer it to me as something that was available, the amount of times I would have bought something is, is ridiculous. But uh, True. Yeah. Anyway. I think of all of us. It's been a forever yeah. lost opportunity. I think people like you and I have forever believed in it. I still believe in it. Um, yeah. I think it's powerful. There's been all kinds of research done that when you recommend something to a client and they act on it, they're more likely to come back and sit in your chair. So even if you didn't make a penny off of retail, the act of recommending it in and of itself creates great value for the salon and for the career. But for whatever reason, you know, we just we haven't collectively stepped up. Yeah, it's a bit like I I um, was listening to someone, uh, well, I was watching someone on a on a movie or video or something, and he was he was talking about why is it that when you put a camera in front of someone to talk, that their voice changes and their whole mm-hmm. demeanor changes, yep. and basically for the worse. Like, yep, always. You know, that they sort of feel they have to become this person uh, as soon as you stick a camera in front of it. And you're saying like, why is that? And so the analogy I'm drawing is it's like this kid in the barbershop. I mean, he wasn't a kid. He was like 21 or something like that, mm-hmm. young man in the barbershop. Yep. Yep. Why is it that he feels that to talk to me professionally about recommending something, that if he was to do that, he would have to turn into some Joe Schmo, the second-hand car salesman, because that's not what it's about. And yet, that's what often happens when I see hairdressers talk about retail. They just they just get it all wrong because they sort of go into this now. I've got to sell them something mode, and it just you know it, it just doesn't work. I think you've, you know, it's interesting that you bring this up because I, I have what feels profound thoughts in my head around this because we, again, we've all been, t- many of us have been talking about this for years. You know, your, your kind of analogy to the camera, I think is fascinating. So I, I want to start with that. What, you know, what, why is that? What, why do we want to become something we're not on camera? I would argue that if we put aside this moment we're living in where everybody's on Zoom, that for the most part, and think pre-social and especially, you know, generationally, not the young, younger folks, let's say the 30 plus crowd. We, I think we think we need to be a different way on camera because every single person we've ever seen on camera was a different way than ourselves. They're professionals, they're actors, they're entertainers, they're performers, they're media trained. You know, they're, we, we, we've grown up seeing people on camera who are different, you know, they look different, they act different. And it's, it's a thing, you know, it's, it's, and I don't care whether it's, you know, it is, it's fact or fiction um, in, in terms of what they're doing in the moment. But I, I think, cause I don't know where else it could come from. Like we have this perception of what's supposed to happen when someone sees something on camera and it has to do a lot with our presence. I would say for the salon, it's, it's, we've, We've not seen the right thing often enough to want to be it. Like we're channeling what we experienced ourselves, whether it was a, a kid, it was the salon we sat in, whether it's the co the coworker that we haven't seen doing what you described as the best way to do it. That we don't have the, the right examples, you know, that we can that we can emulate. So we just kind of fall into this other thing. And I would argue that we're falling into the thing which we most often observe, which is someone not selling retail who should be. So therefore, we yeah. don't. That's that's my weird take inspired by your video comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. Um, so I was having this similar conversation with someone, you know, at a personal level recently, and we were talking about uh, Jamie Oliver. Do you know Jamie Oliver? Oh yeah, the yeah. chef, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't know and, him, but I know of him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think everyone in the in, in the you know the Western world, English speaking yeah. world, has probably seen Jamie Oliver on their TV screen. Yep. Um, in fact, I I heard a fun fact recently. Uh, the the um, greatest uh, lived or the greatest author the person who sold the most books ever in the history of the U- uk is um uh what's her name oh my god i can't forgive harry that. potter <laughs> yeah harry, harry potter, potter. Well, yeah. what's her name um i can't believe i can't think of her name jk rowling right? thank you <laughs> okay so jk J. rowling is the biggest selling author ever in the history of the uk do you know who's second? Jamie well, it's Oliver. Be Jamie Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, God Almighty! Apparently, one in three homes wow. in the UK have a Jamie Oliver book. So, oh. at least one. But, wow. but the point of what I was going to say was that one of his reasons why he is so successful is because he's natural. What yeah. you see is what you get. Yep. Uh, I know people who who do know him, and they say that there is just no transition. Like he mm-hmm. is just 
There's no script. He's just Joe Schmo. Like, you know, uh, he's just natural, completely natural. Whereas I I know when you stick a camera in front of me and I'm doing video for, for, you know, seminars or whatever, it's very hard to not turn into this alter ego. It's very hard not to. But, But that is the, it's the authenticity of Jamie Oliver or people that are able to do that. And I, uh, you know, whether you're standing behind a chair talking about a bottle of shampoo, that you don't have to go into this crazy sort of mode of it's being awkward and uncomfortable that you can just be yep. natural, you know, yep. and that's the key, isn't it? To success yep. there. Um, anyway, look on that, that selling thing, the other thing I've noticed, and I know you're, you're, you know, um, passionate about social media. Um, and I noticed that Instagram with their, you know, sort of current sort of reinvention that they've just gone through with their app yep. and Facebook, they're both really pushing the shop side of their apps. So um, I'm sort of imagining that, that that'll make a lot more salons look at way to, ways to utilize, because their salons are already big on Instagram, ways yep. to utilize that sort of shop and develop their own e-commerce platform what are your what are your thoughts about that well i think it's a huge opportunity and and you're right social's pushing it and we know that anything that they push on instagram or or facebook means that the algorithm is going to treat it well it means they're they they are actively kind of institutionally going to to make it work better you know so so we should always pay attention to what they're paying attention to so i think the opportunity is massive um as an industry and then yeah um but i think like with so much else related to the retail conversation, I, I worry that most um, will not take advantage of it because they've yet to prioritize retail. And I think most of the industry has yet to prioritize retail in spite of the fact that we've been at it for 40 plus 50 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I, I don't know about you. Did you, did you, did have you bought anything on the Instagram shop? Like I just got a brand new Dyson vacuum and it's because of Instagram shop. It showed up in my feed one day and I was just kind of like, this is it. This is the perfect, the perfect deal, the perfect opportunity. So I am an Instagram shopper now officially. Officially. Okay. No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I have a great yet. experience. It was a great uh, I'm experience. sure. I'm sure it will be. Uh, yeah. I haven't bought anything off it yet, but uh, yeah, I've been very aware of how it works and how seamless it is. Totally. You, know, you, you sat on the couch with one eye on the TV, scrolling through something. You see, yeah. in your case, a Dyson cleaner, you have a quick look at it and you don't even get up off the couch. It's like exactly. click, bang, and it's delivered the next day. I mean, it's like, it's it's very seductive and and yep. they know how to make that that technology seamless. I mean, like yep. Amazon, that's part of their success. Uh, the seamlessness of the exchange is is what makes it um, so seductive. Um, what what other changes do you see happening in the social media and salon space? Where do you see that going? Well, I mean, I I think again, if I separate us a little bit from COVID, you know, I, I I think again, going back to the generational issues, the younger generation of consumers and professionals are just they were born into this. So I, I think we're going to continue to see the you know kind of upward trend of people utilizing it from every single direction. I think you know there's a big opportunity right now. Um, you know, during COVID, I I think you know from a COVID perspective on the clients, I I think that you know the message of safety is so critical and so important. And I think of safety as being kind of the new luxury. And I think that the ability to communicate with clients, we know pre-COVID was amazing by way of Instagram and Facebook. That hasn't changed. And people are living online in ways that we never even thought was possible. So there's just nothing but opportunity. The question is, are we going to avail ourselves to it individually? Every hairdresser, every saloner. You know, I think those who who take the time to understand them better and get the skills, um, they, they're only going to win because there's no question that the clients of the clients being there or not, they are there. And mm-hmm. as you just referenced on, on, on social um, um, shops now, um, they're buying stuff. So, you know, the real question is, are we as an industry going to show up for the clients in, in a way that you know compels them to do things, book appointments, buy retail, you know, um, be inspired by the work that we do. Um, so it's just, Every opportunity that was there pre-COVID has been supercharged and the jury's out on whether we're going to step up or not. Yeah, it, it's amazing how quick it evolves, isn't it? You know, yep. I mean, Instagram just had its 10th birthday this year. Um, isn't that crazy? 
isn't it? Yeah, you know, and Facebook's very definitely for old people. Like, yeah. you know, as my kids tell me, well, I don't want to be on Facebook, you know. Which and is remember, and re- but, re- but remember, too, something we learned out of COVID, you know, I think we understand more about economics or a lot of us do than we ever have. And the old people have the money. Mm. Um, so if you want to make yeah. the money, yeah, yeah, go yeah. where the old people are. Yeah. <laughs> That's my best yeah. advice, salons and, and professionals. <laughs> you know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with having a clientele that has access to more cash. And exactly. I, I certainly would prioritize, if nothing else, at mixing some of those people into, into the rest of my mix, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And the old people are on Facebook, as you say. So, um, okay, let's talk about hair color for a minute, because mm. th- that's been another thing that's been very interesting this year. Uh, when, when COVID or lockdown first started happening all over the world, you had hairdressers in varying degrees. I mean, it got quite... Um, got quite angry basically on social media between yep. a lot of people because there were the fours and the against you know there were people that were mixing up color and giving it to their clients to do their own color at home and there were other people uh that were you know very um you know volatile about that in terms of their reaction and what implications does that have for insurance and you know you're dumbing down the industry blah 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 yep. um but with brands like, I mean, this year with, uh, and these are, they're not all American centric. Um, uh, Color and Co is only available in the United States. Um, E-Salon is available in Europe. Um, and I believe Madison Reed is, is as well. But mm. these three brands, they're not the supermarket box color. They yep. are this online color brand with the consultant with a professional colorist on the other end of a zoom call step-by-step videos you know it's a very seductive offer and inevitably a lot of clients have um been using them this year because salons have been closed they can't get to the salon or or they don't feel that the salon's a safe environment so um i think that all those well those three brands i think that they have probably um exploded uh this year um so what do you think the long-term impact of that's going to be what do you what's your feeling about that in the salon sense well you know hair color including home hair color has has you know, forever been a kind of a wonky industry conversation. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, how dare somebody color their hair at home? That's, you know, that's just bad. You know, we specialize in fixing home hair color. Um, 80% of clients in America have been coloring their hair at home forever. <laughs> so the, the, the real color business, the majority of color business, mm. you know, um, um, is in home hair color. Mm. Um, salon hair color is the upscale version. Of, of color. I think what's really fascinating when we come into an economically challenging time like this is, is that, you know, the, the, there's a giant chasm in economically speaking between the price of a home hair color um, service on yourself or with, with your sister or friend or whoever's helping you do it, perhaps, which is very common um, to the salon experience, you know, the, the money that it's, 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 it's a, a, a big stretch, you know, to get from what you spend for home hair color to what you spend in the salon. So I, I think it, during economic challenging times, it's really interesting. This middle category is going to become, has become attractive for a lot of people just based on money. And the question is, you know, does it have legs? Um, to your point, you know, none of these are new businesses. They've managed to hang in there for quite some time. Madison Reed, I think, is 10 years old now, yeah. you know, and so they're still here and they're still raising money and, and, mm. and more so than ever. So I think it, it will, we, it, the category will emerge post-corona strong and meaningful. And I think we'll pay attention to it in ways we never have. And I think it's only going to grow. And I think it will grow at the expense of both salon color and home hair color. It's going to be that new middle ground, you know, yeah, exactly. people who aspire, it's going to be a stepping step into the salon. Hopefully we start to gain some of those customers, you know, who come from home to the middle to the salon and then the other direction, you know, and the question there becomes when I downgrade, you know, from a full experience in a salon to a Madison Reed like experience, how do I feel? You know, do I really, do I feel like I'm missing something, you know, cause that, that becomes the big thing. And we think about what's happening with restaurants. So many people are eating at home myself and by eating at home. I mean, having delivery. The question ultimately is how do I feel about the missed experience? Do mm-hmm. I feel, did I love being in the noisy, busy, crazy restaurant? And I, you know, that really excited me. And a lot of people are, 
Or am I actually loving pretty much the same food, but eating in my own home? And I'm not going to go back to that particular restaurant. Same applies to hair color. You know, I think if you try it a little differently, if you use Amazon to deliver a product, the question is, do you miss going to the grocery store? If you use an app, Madison Reed, do you miss that salon experience, which is another encouragement for us to all pay more attention to the experience we provide and up our game as high as we possibly can for the dollars we charge. I think that is going to be the ultimate um, factor you know, that determines the success or not of the category. But I, I, I believe they have long seen a weakness in some of what we do and they're they're leveraging it to their advantage yeah yeah no definitely it's, it's interesting what you just said a, a mutual friend of ours Kristen, um yeah uh, she said to me earlier this year she said anthony i don't go to restaurants for the food and, th- and then she finished off that sentence by saying yep. i go for the service and the experience yep and and I never thought of it like that. I mean, you know, my, my wife is an extraordinarily good cook. And I, um, you know, occasionally I'll go to a restaurant and I'll go, mm-hmm. oh, my God, that was amazing food. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more often than not, yeah, you know, it's, I'm there because of the ambience, the experience, yep. the service, the, all, all that stuff. Um, yep. Yeah, so it certainly forces people to to – consider how much they're prepared to pay for that. And in a lot of cases, you're prepared to pay a lot for that, you know, yep. to feel good, to have that experience and to have uh, that, that degree of service. So, okay. Um, Let me add this. I just want to add this, you know, because this is an old idea, but I think it's been, never been more relevant. There's been research done over the years about, you know, service businesses, including salons. And there was a study many, many years ago. It was done, I think, by Yale. Um, and basically it said that when they look at, customer feedback on services that 80 percent 70 plus percent of the success of an individual service provider was based on their people skills communication skills the ability to create a feel-good moment with that client and only 20 to 30 percent of the perception of the client and wanting to come back and return for service was based on the technical skill and to me, this just kind of fits into that same category. You know, the, if the food is okay, but the experience was fabulous, we want to go back to the restaurant. If the service was okay, but the experience was over the top, and I just felt so comfortable, I want to go back to that salon. I've, I've forever said, you know, that we consumers aren't very good at judging great hair versus okay hair. We're great, we're great on valuating how we feel, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a shopping experience, or whether it's a salon. And I think that with COVID, is more relevant than ever. And again, the big opportunity is to really, like I, I, I'm saying to friends, you got balayage, don't worry about it. Go, go take another class on being a great provider of service and communication and consultation. Up, up your people skills, up your consultation skills. That's going to bring you a lot more in the long term than the, ref, the, the refinement of already good technical skills. Yeah, as long as there's that caveat, the already yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. totally, I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. What, what What are your thoughts about the education side of things? Um, uh, Melinda and I have been, you know, working on our courses for the last two or three years to, mm-hmm. to take them online. And the first one was actually ready in March uh, to launch, but we held it back because of COVID until October. And then we had a very successful launch. We had people signing up from nineteen different countries. So. I think that the shift online for education full stop is, um, you know, going to be a long-term shift. It's not yep. just a COVID thing. And it's because it's more cost-effective for everybody, whether it's yes. for, for, for me or the person accessing it. And, and I also think in, in many ways it's, it's better because it's more accessible. Um, yep. So, so what, are your, what are your, you know, comments about all that? Well, big, big picture. I'm beyond excited and I'm excited for one really simple reason. And that is the expanded access of education and information to the masses. You know, Mm -hmm. again, we don't, when we talk about education, we have a tendency, when we talk about everything, we have a tendency to kind of mirror our own views or or look at what our own lives are as, as a filter for everything else. You and I get to hang out with really smart and successful people all over the world, you know, who have got amazing experiences. And most of the people I think you and I know are, are pretty committed to learning and always learning. And so we think about, you know, what's happening and, you know, 
most of those people, you know, love going to workshops and love, you know, really being serious students. And that, that's been their entire lives, you know, as professionals. Um, what we don't talk about are the 70, 80 percent of professionals who in any given year probably never got to any classes. The majority of the industry is yeah. not going to classes or any form of education on a regular basis. We look at the big beauty shows in America where a lot of that education happens. It's like not even 15% of the industry makes it to a big beauty show in a year. That's just the math when you do the registration numbers against everything else. So the, the excitement for me is this large group of professionals who, if they live a thousand miles from the nearest beauty show or, or easy to get to class or don't have the money because that's where they are in their life to go take a really great hands-on workshop. It's like everything is opening up for them. And that's insanely positive. Mm-hmm. And that has nothing to do with, Oh, well, you know, it's better to go to this or that. It has to do with access. It's yeah. like, that person now, you know, the world is their oyster if they choose to make it so. So I think that's the most fundamental and important shift. For those who've always, you know, that hardcore learner who loves their hands-on workshop, who love their real-time education, and, you know, things will get back to normal at a certain point. And I believe that they will have that opportunity. I think demand will shift. I don't think we'll see as many events. And I also think economically, you know, that's going to change the mix, whether we like it or not. I think it's going to move more to online. As we talked earlier, I think the industry has a lot of work to do on how to teach and how to learn online. And I think the platforms are so much money being put into the um, learning platforms outside of beauty, the world, right? The world is evolving with online learning. I think 12 to 24 months from now, we're not going to recognize the online learning space. I think there's so much good that's coming Mm -hmm. because the, the people with money are understanding that there has been this massive shift and there's going to be gazillions of people learning online. And that means there's an economic opportunity. So they're moving their money that direction. So that excites me more than anything, because I, I think we've only begun to see what these platforms can do. And yeah. I think um, the features, the benefits, like how they actually work is going to be, it's going to be changing in a yeah. really good way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, any other digital disruptions you see happening? Well, I'll do this one as a caveat, you know, because I have seen too too much of this. This is more on what I don't like that I'm seeing. And that is when I see those who are trying to figure out online learning in terms of presenting online learning, trying to emulate what was. Like to me, it's like, okay, the world's changed. Let's change. Let's not try to recreate the beauty show online. Like, please don't make yeah. me like walk down the rows, you know? Yeah. Please, you know, please, but you know, it's, it's fundamentally different. Don't make it the same. No, nope. you know, we used to go to beauty schools or beauty shows. You, you, you and I were the people who were at a beauty show for 12, 14 hours in a single day from before it opened till after it closed, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the idea that just classes all day long and there's things to do all day long. Well, that's great, you know, but that's not now. And, and nobody wants to sit in front of a computer for eight hours. Like mm. I pretty much do every day but I can't watch one continuous thing, you know? Yeah, no, so so yeah. I, I think if we're going to reinvent, you know, the event model in some ways, um, it, while we wait for it to somewhat come back, probably in a different form, we just have to remember the context is that we're living on these machines and I don't get to leave a classroom and go hang out in the hall and, and, and laugh and giggle with my friends, you know, and mm. have that moment of, of lightness and, 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 um, and then go back into the classroom re-energized. No, I'm like shackled to the computer for for eight hours. Yeah. And um, it changes everything. And Mm. and I don't think we're we're yet there um, as an industry reacting to that just fundamental idea. Yeah. What what, what do you think on the other side of this as we get into 2021? What what is it consumers want? Easy. You know, in a a salon sense, have they they got used to the physical spacing and the the time and the hygiene standards and, you know, all that sort of stuff. What are your thoughts there? I, I think, I, I honestly don't think the salon itself is the, the most important relevant factor, um, meaning that we're just all changing how we live our lives, you know? So the real question is, does my salon experience fit into how I perceive the bigger change that's happening in my life? You know, um, if I'm that person and, and we know in the States is a really great example. We know that there are political considerations and, and just, you know, a lot of different thoughts on what's right or not in this weird moment in, in time. Mm. So if I'm that person, as I am, you know, who is really passionate about following what I believe are the correct health directives and, you know, all about wearing masks and social distancing, 
I don't have an interest in going to a salon that isn't 100 on board with the same protocol. So that's my judgment as a consumer. The yeah. salon where I go to, they they have it nailed. Uh, I was saying to a friend the other day, I I could not feel more loyal than I I feel more loyal than ever to my hairdresser in my salon because of how mm. they've handled COVID. I can tell you from conversations with that salon owner that they've lost clients because of their reaction to COVID and being so mm. good in my view. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. like, oh, what do you mean? I have to wear my, ma- I'm here for a three hour color service. I can't ever take my mask off. And he's like, no, you can't, you know, but I have mine on for eight to 10 hours. So let me give you some tips, you know, that kind of, but you know, he's lost clients. So yeah. it's, again, it's a very kind of unusual world and different categories of people are going to view things in different ways. And so I think ultimately it's about the consumer as it always has been. It's about your category of consumers. You know, it's like, who is your audience? If your audience is like me, then you you need to be a certain way. I hope no matter how you deal with it, you're always safe and and looking out for your own safety and your your teams and and your customers. But again, we know there's differences of opinion. So I, I think it just boils down to, are you doing what's right for your, for your clients and prospective clients. And there's no great clarity that one size fits all in this moment. Mm. But I do think uh, consumer behavior has forever been changed. I think safety will become more and more important to more people as we come through this. I think as we, um, you know, we look at, I, I look to Asia a lot. I think, you know, you know, I've talked about this before. They've been through this, you know, th- this is like a decade old thing for Asia. This is not mm. new and they've adjusted. And here's the great thing that I see in Asia um, through many pandemics and now through what's happening, they've gone back to normal very quickly, you yeah. know? Um, and part of it's because again, they've lived through it before. Um, and, and so if I made a big predictor about the beauty industry, I think we'll, we will look more like we did than, 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 um, than not. I think we will be 80% what we were before and the 20% will be whatever the nuances um, that apply to our entire society and culture. So again, you go to Asia, you know, pre pandemic, you see a lot of masks all the time. Not like Mm. we see now, but you do. And, you know, and, 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 and there's a, there's a different awareness of health and safety that we have. And again, it's, it's very subtle. It's cultural. It kind of underlies everything. And Mm. it's, it's based on a series of habits and, and, and government guidance over the years. So, you know, I I think we're going to be more like we were with some nuanced changes. And, um, and I think probably the biggest thing will be coming out of COVID again, things like this expose our weaknesses and, and um, we will have some closures and we will have some people leave the industry. And just like the pruning of, of a tree, we will come back healthier and stronger than ever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, well, listen, we need to uh, wrap up. That's been um, thoroughly enjoyable. I always enjoy talking always. to you. And uh, I'm sure my listeners uh, would have got a lot out of it as well. So uh, where, whereabouts can people uh, connect with you, Gordon? What are your social media channels? And uh, where can they check out Gary's podcast if anyone hasn't yeah. heard it? So on the podcast, you know, my, our podcast over here at Hairbrained is uh, Hairbrained Conversations, Hairbrained with an ED on the end, Conversations. And you can Google it and you'll find all the platforms, at, you know, it's Apple Podcasts and Spotify and and uh, and others. So I love that folks check that out. Thank you for that. Um, Hairbrained, of course, um, I'm CEO of Hairbrained. So Hairbrained is Hairbrained underscore official. That's our Instagram. Um, you can just look for Hairbrained on Facebook. And then me personally, uh, my Instagram handle is Gordon M. Um, I spell that G-O-R-D-N-M. N is in Nancy, M as in Mary. Um, and yeah, that's how, you, that's how you find us and find me. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, Gordon, And uh, wait, I have to say, in two days, you and I are, I'm going to return the favor and I'm going to record you on a Hairbrain Conversations podcast. That's another reason for people to go check out Hairbrain Conversation. It will not be your first time there. So anybody who goes to the podcast, just put in the search bar, Anthony Whitaker, and you'll get some great, great content and another new one soon. Cool. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be my, my third one or not. Yes. Yes. My third one on that, but we did yes. another two on American Salon American when, you, when yes. you were doing yes. that over the, yes. uh, the well, that's got to be four or five years ago. So yeah, I've been in Hairbrain uh, just over three years. And so, yeah, yes. it, was, it was four or five years, but, um, and you're one of my favorite podcast guests. I, I just love this, these conversations as we had Good. today. So looking forward to it. Well, thank you, Gordon. Uh, really appreciate you being on this episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. It's my pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.